When the curtains on stage remain closed, what can a theatre company do to keep their work alive? They could turn their shows into a short film, like Breach Theatre did with their work, It's True, It's True, It's True. But where do you start with adapting from stage to TV? And how on earth do you build partnerships so that people will actually watch it? That's something today's guest, writer Billy Barrett, can shed some light on. And hopefully, by listening, you might feel inspired too to share your idea and reach out to our agency for support. After all, our doors and curtains are always open. Welcome to the Space Arts Podcast. Hello, I'm Claire Freeman. I'm a freelance associate and audio mentor with The Space. And we're an agency that supports artists making great digital work. Have a look at our funding opportunities, by the way. It's on our website, thespace.org. Today, we look into how the world of theatre has had to adapt during rather testing times. For many performance-based organisations, phrases like social media and digital aren't necessarily new. But when there's only a few of you running the show, excuse the pun, it can seem cumbersome to even know where to start in transforming existing work or a new idea into a digital offering. And that was the quandary that Breach Theatre found themselves in last year. With a staff of four, not even full-time, they applied to the space asking for help in adapting their established stage show into a film. They were successful in their application, but it wasn't just money that the space offered. It was also support from digital mentors, experts in their field, to help guide Breach throughout the filming and after its release. And crucially, it was a relationship that enabled the team to have their work aired on BBC4 just before lockdown hit, something which turned out to be pretty vital for their survival. As their tour at the Barbican Theatre in March was cancelled, they were still able to put out their work, albeit in a digital format. So this is an episode which looks much deeper into how to form successful partnerships and distribution. So grab that cup of tea that you've been meaning to drink for a while now, sit back, listen to this conversation myself and Chief Executive Fiona Morris captured with Billy at the end of 2020. Fiona kicks off by explaining how Breach Theatre first came to connect with the space But before that, here's a taster of what It's True, It's True, It's True is about from the three leading ladies of the show. The show It's True, It's True, It's True, it focuses around the rape trial of an artist, Artemisia Gentileschi. We didn't set out to make it a Me Too show, it's just an important story to tell. And thankfully, people have connected to it, but unfortunately, some of the darker themes are particularly relevant today. When we first started making the show and thinking about how to play Artemisia, I thought it might be quite difficult to get a sense of who she was. But actually, she's bold, she's brave. It didn't feel archaic because it felt very, very current. The tone of the show shifts like being on a roller coaster. It should feel really exciting and like you don't really know what's going to happen next. Each time we rehearse the show, we find something new or our experiences. So it's constantly being fed, it's constantly being known and it's just growing bigger and bigger into a beautiful garden. 
We were delighted to be able to work with, with Breach Theatre and with Billy and the and the rest of the creative team there. But it, and it came up really as part of our commissioning relationship with the BBC. Um, and it was pre-pandemic. And so I remember we met, I think, in Somerset House. Gosh, what is it, like two years ago maybe now, Billy, I guess, those very first meetings. So, and that was really a conversation to say, you know, what, what was the nature of the piece that they wanted to transfer to television? It wasn't a show that was going to be on as a live performance on the stage um, in the period of time that, that we were looking at uh, rec- making a recording of it for television. So it would, so the opportunity was there to actually restage it for filming. Um, and Billy will no doubt talk about that because I think that was a really interesting journey to go on uh, with the piece. But we were were delighted to kind of start that conversation with the team. And, you know, I think it's really important to make sure that when the space is supporting arts artists, arts organisations around the UK, that, you know, we want to be able to give opportunities to younger emerging talents that are coming through so that we're not seeing on our screens just one kind of tier of arts and cultural output. It's really important, particularly in these times where there are issues like Black Lives Matter movement and hashtag me too to, to let younger artists who I feel you know feel very strongly about these subjects and make some really compelling points through the work they're staging. Mm. I mean Billy, welcome to the podcast. I guess the first question I've got to ask is why did you want to adapt the show to work for a TV or film audience? Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, first of all, uh, who would turn down that opportunity um, in that um, everyone wants their work to reach a wider audience. Um, and for context, this show is a small scale show by, uh, as Fiona said, we're a sort of younger, uh, more emerging company. And the sorts of venues that it had been performed in were around 80 seats to 100, normally the studio space within a larger organisation. So even through touring uh, quite extensively, as the show had done, we were never going to reach the numbers um, which we could reach uh, through a broadcast and through a digital version of the show, uh, which I know now has exceeded over 100,000 people who have seen it. Um, So there's something so exciting to us about bringing a story that... I think is now getting more attention, uh, particularly as there's an exhibition about uh, Artemisia Gentileschi currently at the National Gallery uh, and various kind of other things that are coming out, but historically has been overlooked. And I think that story really waited for its moment to be told, which which certainly happened around 2018, as you've said, with the Me Too movement. Um, So it felt like a story that had the potential to speak to not only people around the country, but people around the world as these kinds of Uh, scandals and dynamics uh, were being exposed and fought within all sorts of different industries. Um, So definitely audiences was a big was a big pull. But I think for us as a company we've always engaged with film in a way we're sort of a multimedia theatre company really. Um, This is our first show that didn't have a filmed element. Um, So we've always been excited by more kind of visual and digital storytelling with our live work and we're just yeah really really excited to be presented with the opportunity to to translate this to screen and see what that could be <laughs> so what did you know about how to get your show on say bbc4 which is where it aired earlier on this year before the pandemic which was great but what did you know about what you needed to do to make that happen uh I guess I I wasn't too aware of the actual uh, 
Uh, I didn't know about how the spaces uh, commissioning worked. I'd seen some of these live captures. And then in terms of the practical steps to actually translating that to screen, um, yeah, it was it was all a bit of a mystery to me. Uh, thankfully, the space were really supportive in what, in what they sort of call the amber lit phase, where you sort of begin conversations around how something might develop, but it's not green lit yet. Um, and during that time, they sort of assigned us different freelancers who've worked for them to help develop the pitch of what it might look like. So those more practical things like uh, running time, music rights, um, whether it's going to be shot multi-camera live or whether you're going to shoot it sort of single camera like a drama um, those questions were kind of put to us rather than us have to think of what those questions were uh, and it was through those conversations and collaborations during that amber lit phase that we really developed what it might look like as a screen as a screen project i mean how many how many are are you in your company just give us a sort of size of staff uh, so we're a core company of four. Um, we're three creatives, myself, Ellis Stevens, who co-wrote the piece with me and plays Artemisia, uh, and Dorothy Allen Pickard, who was the dramaturg on this piece, but is principally a filmmaker. Uh, and then we have a brilliant producer, Ellie Clawton, um, who worked with uh, the producer on this film, Anne Beresford, to produce the piece uh, and has taken a lead really on the kind of distribution side of things. But yeah, we're a very small core team um, who collaborate with different actors and creatives on a project by project basis. So there are actors and designers and other creatives who we work with again and again because we've developed relationships over the five years of being a company. Um, but we're a very, yeah, we're kind of light on our feet in the sense of having a small team and no overheads really, which actually mm. during this pandemic is a bit of a, um, a bit of a luxury because we don't have big costs uh, like staff or buildings to, to have to cover. Wow. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Fiona, but we work with so many kind of theatre companies who are just starting out and they have quite skeleton staff. Often people are multi-jobbed. They've got part-time hours. Then they maybe got childcare and then they're writing, they're directing, they're, they're marketing, they're doing social media, they do a bit of everything. So I think it's amazing to know how many people you've got in your team, Billy, and how when you watch It's True, It's True, It's True, it feels like a big scale production. Like, I mean, like Fiona, you could probably share some of the secrets of how the space kind of like held Billy and his team's hands, because this is something that you do regularly, right? The the link between, hey, there's this great idea, that would be great to work with these partners over here with BBC4 or people like that. How do you spot that, Fiona, in knowing a good jewel and how to make it shine or I'm moving my hands like I'm waving or polishing or something, but you know what I mean, right? I do, I do. I think, um, I mean, the big thing is this is this is Breach's show. This is not our show to uh, to suddenly come in and, and and kind of take over. So so I think what's important is to from the space's point of view is to put support around. So as Billy said, these kind of really painful issues that come up around music rights. You know, a piece of commercial music you might have used in a live show. The minute you publish that on any other platform, you 
know, becomes a very, very different thing. So that's the kind of stuff where, look, there isn't enough time in any creative's day to really need to get into the nitty gritty of that. So we can try and help and support things around that. But when it comes to what goes on screen at, at the end of this, it's it's more about enabling the team to have um, a supportive conversation around what the essence of the work is and what you therefore want to translate to screen. And I know very early on in conversations around it's true, it's true, you know, the idea for those of you who will have seen any of it, it is a courtroom based drama, that that already is a spectator uh, arena uh, and that therefore we shouldn't mess with that too much. That actually the idea that the TV audience become another one of those gallery spectators watching into this proscenium, it would be completely wrong to break that energy apart. So, so that actually the, the filming of it was, was kept within that contained front-facing um, proscenium setting, but with a lot more intensity of where the cameras could be. And, and to, so really enabling, it's about enabling that conversation to happen, not by saying, oh, it's got to be this in order for it to, to to be broadcast but but then there's all the stuff that sits around the side I mean you know Billy will know this you know in terms of credits who you can credit how you can credit what I mean honestly more days are spent over broadcast programs talking about that and you know so it's things like that it's doing a bit of hand-holding around that and also those kind of compliance issues you know what you do when you're in a theatre where people have chosen to come there and pay money to sit in front of you is very different from what you can do and what you can say in terms of language the opinions you express if they're going out on a broadcast channel so so there's it's all of that that, that we're there to try and tr take people forward through that side of things so they don't trip up um, over those things but hopefully at the core of it to then let them get on and do what they do brilliantly which is to make a really compelling piece of drama transit from a live presentation to to a broadcast one See, audience is like a key subject that we keep coming back to here, Billy. It's like kind of a key focal point of, you know, reaching a new audience, accessible audience. I guess I'm intrigued to kind of know as a writer, a director, when you have a piece of work and you know it's going to be toured, people buy tickets in advance. Like, you know, people are going to turn up and watch your show. When you make something digital, is it does it feel quite vulnerable in a different way that you're putting something out there and you don't know a whether people are going to watch it and b whether people are going to engage in it or like it or so what what was that experience like for you uh i think it definitely felt vulnerable yeah cuz um the show had had quite a long touring life before we we made this live capture so i was confident in it, in it as a live work um and I was very confident in the team that had been assembled for bringing it onto screen. But really, it's it's a whole new thing. And I was conscious uh, as I was watching it when it went out live on BBC Four of the difference between sitting in a theatre on an opening night where you can feel the buzz of expectation from the audience as the lights go down. You can hear laughs and um, you definitely know at the end whether it's polite clapping or whether people have enjoyed it. The difference between that and sitting alone in my room on my laptop the awareness that this is going out on um, on the BBC and just thinking what are you know what are people thinking how are people responding to this um, I think as Fiona said we kept the show pretty intact um, we didn't sort of break it open and and re-explore uh, how to present it but 
there are some quite key differences, I think, to the show, particularly when it comes to music, because we used a lot of commercial music, uh, and also just whether we had successfully managed to do that thing of making the audience feel as if they were A, a theatre audience, and B, um, some sort of jury or spectators within a courtroom, whether that intensity would translate. Um, so I did feel nervous, yeah, that it would, um, that it would reach people in the same way. Uh, and it's been so brilliant to see um, responses from people as it went out on social media, um, partly during the broadcast, but I think definitely we've been oddly helped by this lockdown situation in terms of it having a much longer um, digital life of just seeing those responses roll in and feeling like, yes, we've managed to capture that thing that made it so fascinating um, <laughs> to people in real See, I didn't see the live version. I only have seen your digital offering. And I definitely, I mean, holding people's attention in the digital world, you know, quite often we have this kind of people watch the first 10, 20 seconds of a video and then they'll just play next or skip on to something. And it's interesting that you kind of say that because there were times when you watch your show that it feels quite uncomfortable. Like actually I felt myself wanting to pause and step away, which when you're in a theatre you can't do. So um, yeah, it's interesting how people interact with your work in a different way. Do you think that in future when you kind of look at writing for you know your next work or future works that you might kind of think about the way that you write or direct things differently to factor in specifically kind of create content for that audience not for a live audience first and foremost uh, I think definitely I mean something that I felt watching the show as I said live as it was going out is that we do something particularly in this show the first 10 minutes also pretty heavily verbatim. We open quite cold in this courtroom and you're introduced to a series of characters who just kind of give testimony. And in a theatre, the audience can't leave. So they their intrigue kind of builds as they think, okay, where is this going? And then we kind of break that about 10 minutes in with something quite visual, which is the, the sort of Susanna and the Elders um, painting moment. Um, so I was slightly conscious that on TV, to be introduced to a series of essentially talking heads for about 10 minutes, giving a lot of Italian names, talking about relationships between people, um, might be a bit of an ask. And uh, I'm grateful that people seem to have stuck with it and watched the whole show. But I think, um, yeah, with, a, with, a, um, with TV or film, I think that might uh, generally be a bit of a stretch. So I think structurally things might have been slightly different had it been uh, made for TV in the first place. See, Fiona, I'm going to share a link in this description for this episode. You wrote a brilliant article on the space um, skills section, which was called Creating Global Audiences. Um, and, it, you know, it kind of talks about the difference, the impact that digital technologies are having on the arts. I mean, do you kind of see something like, you know, Billy and Breach's work that, you know, it's quite it's quite heavy manpower to be able to kind of take a tour on the road, get all the, the shows in, get the audiences in. So this kind of opportunity, I suppose, that Breach's show can now reach a global audience is actually possible. It's helping them get their work out there. Like this is obviously a kind of thing that's rolling with the arts world and growing and growing, but can also feel quite daunting for people who are like, I'd love that, but I'm not quite sure how to get there. 
Yeah, no, I think, well, as we've sort of said, you know, this began as a project that, that was part of our BBC commissioning strand, but even early doors to that, we were talking to the company because part of what what we're very concerned to do with any artist or, or arts organisation is to say, if it's a broad, if you've got a broadcast window, that's amazing. But it's quite hard to be identified in that broadcast window because at the end of the day, a television audience is coming to a channel, whether it's Netflix or Amazon, on BBC or ITV as that as that publisher so they they don't necessarily take away messaging to say so for example I, I often quote the example of you know people the day after they've seen a Royal Opera House um, broadcast might say oh I saw the Royal Opera House's Traviata last night but if they saw Garsington Opera's Traviata the following morning they're probably going to say did you see the BBC's Traviata last night um, the Cherry Orchard it, they might say National Theatre's Cherry Orchard last night but if it's Newcastle Playhouse they're probably going to say did you see the BBC sees cherry orchard last night so so the recognition of who you are as an arts organization and we keep going on about this in this podcast which is do you cannot be um you cannot be bound up in one piece of digital content defining you it's got to be a conversation that you're starting to have and have online with audiences about breach the nature of the work that breach as a collaborative creative team make responding to kind of contemporary issues with historical examples with other more testimonially more recent testimony pieces it's it, it's about it's about that engagement so that you build an audience who wants to hear from you about other things and so even with this project we we talked with the team about where and how it would be distributed after its broadcast window had, had kind of taken place then of course uh you know um our friend the pandemic kind of lurks into view and suddenly all of, of breaches plans and everybody else's plans about touring and opportunities to present live performance went out the window for you know an unknown unspecified period of time so what was amazing was the team immediately swung in to talk to their partner venues about using their leverage with their audiences to put live streams online but that's got to, but and that's really targeting um particular audiences actually your existing audiences but then also thinking about where the opportunity might come once you've published this work very visibly as breach to then be familiar and or have other audiences online become aware of you and get in contact with you and that isn't just about you know what you might term the end user audience member that's also about the creative sector as a whole you know we've now had the best part of 18 months really when this all plays out if not two years where young emerging talent and artists writers actors directors have not been seen by their peers in the sector you know other artistic directors other casting directors have not had an opportunity this is a two-year blank gap where young people who with really, really important, creative, wonderful pieces have been silenced. And at least digitally, you know, there's an opportunity to kind of put that, put those voices back. But, it, but it's an interesting period of time and it will be interesting to see what stays going forward mm. from all of this. See, Billy, you're, you know, one of the things that you did was uh, you partnered with the Barbican Theatre, who you were due to kind of run a, a load of performances with uh, in March, April time this year, and also the National Gallery. I mean, it, I suppose 
uh, there will be theatre companies listening to this thinking we'd love to kind of do that and we really want to get into partnerships and distribution there can also sometimes be a bit of a fear I suppose over what am I kind of signing away rights wise IP wise editorial wise how much control do I have over you know ownership of them kind of marketing do I get sign off don't I but it almost seems like it's inevitable that you need to kind of embrace partnerships and ask these people just even picking up the phone and asking them because you can't necessarily get this kind of reach with only four or five staff members plus a handful of freelancers what was that process like going and calling or making these connections with Barbican or or National Gallery um yeah I think you're absolutely right I mean I think uh, it's important to say it was um, our producer who was leading uh, on these conversations, Ellie. Um, and that's one of the main things she's been doing during this lockdown, um, particularly at the beginning of lockdown, um, was really working on reaching out to our existing network of theatres and also reaching out to other institutions, particularly for this project that were related to art and art history, um, who might want to partner with us. Um, and I think the way in which she did that was to make sure she was working quite closely with their comms people and their social media people to ensure that say copy was signed off by us and that the kind of messaging around it um, was consistent across all those platforms. Um, I think what worked quite well, um, yeah, was that this particular show had the potential to reach an arts audience uh, rather than specifically a theatre audience. Um, because it's about an artist and because there was this quite high profile exhibition around um, and with the National Gallery in particular we've been working uh, sort of on and off with them over the last two years since we began this project but we there's an awareness that we have an audience they don't and they have an audience we don't um, and so it's that kind of reciprocal thing of how can we draw on each other's different audience bases to see this thing that's combining both their interests Um, But I think drawing on your existing networks is a really useful way to go about it. Um, As you said, we partnered with Barbican. We also worked with New Diorama, who we're associates with in London, who sent it out to their uh, enormous uh, email list, Um, but also regional venues like The Pound, which is a small art centre in Corsham, um, with a capacity of about 50 people, but who we've toured to before. Yeah, it's about reaching people who aren't necessarily plugged into social media even but who might be really loyal audiences to a regional venue and who keep up with their email list um but yeah I think Ellie uh working with um Anne who was the film producer did just such a brilliant job in terms of keeping momentum up and realizing also that people's appetite for streaming theatre might not last the duration of that first lockdown so actually moving quite fast to say right we got in in the nick of time to film this let's make sure people are going to see it really within mm. the next. Maximise your opportunity. Yeah. See, one of the things that you did do, um, which has kind of been a, a bit of a, a buzz term, I suppose, throughout 2020, is the idea of a watch party. And I attended some of these, um, you know, with other projects that we did with the space, even as audio series, actually. Uh, One of the projects that I mentored was Isolation in Your Words, which came out on the 31st of October, which was the night that Boris announced the second uh, national English lockdown. And at 9pm or 9.30pm, 
the the program, which was a collection of music uh, and spoken word about what isolation meant to people, was aired that night. And we all were on Zoom with our videos on, but our you know audio muted, listening in the background to the program at the same time. And it was amazing to watch as the music kind of kicked into drum and bass. Everybody was slightly delayed in different ways, dance at the same time. But I suppose what it also does is because quite often with digital content, it's something that we can experience on our own, uh, in our own time, whenever we wish. But there's also something that as performers, we like to create these events, these appointments to listen. So um, the watch parties, I think, are, you know, a real interesting way to kind of see how do we kind of make a buzz, a noise about this, a launch, you know, part of our marketing plan. Come on, guys, let's get together and watch this collectively. I mean, what was that? What was your watch party like and what kind of feedback did you get? Was it worth it? Uh, I think it was absolutely worth it. Yeah. I mean, I think the things that make live theatre so exciting is that sense of co-presence and sort of simultaneity with other people. It's about the shared sense of watching something and experiencing something, you know, even though the film was actually just available at any time for people to watch, creating that sense of isolated, but somehow together feeling of all watching it really actually brought a lot more people in to make up for the fact that you're not kind of together in person. I think you always need to build other things around it. So we did some live tweeting during the live uh, watch party. We then combined that with an Instagram live interview after. But I think having something that is available, but that you can say, right, we're all going to watch it together and, and tweet along really worked for us. It's thinking about audiences again, you know, which we we bang on about a lot. I know it's based, but it is thinking about, you know, it's exactly that issue, as, as Billy says, you know, sometimes, and we did some sort of early talking to the sector sort of in the first two months of lockdown and now we've sort of updated that and you know there's definitely I would say there's two kind of headlines around it really one is personalization you know seeing audiences as individuals however you invite them into this opportunity to this moment of event that you're trying to make that that they do feel that's been personalized that you've seen them you've acknowledged that they have been denied coming to see you live so there is a degree of personalization to the offer and then and then what's the atmosphere that you can build around the event? And I think the watch parties are a great way of, of making an individual audience member realise that they are exactly, as Billy says, part of a group of people sharing it because that shared experience is the thing that counts, is the, the reason that we all love to go and see theatre, watch dance, listen to music, you know, is, is because of a shared experience that's going on to hear other people laugh, to hear other people gasp, you know, it's really, really, that's part of the human experience. And, and so we've got to kind of think about that online. But equally, at the same time, because of of having these kind of agile digital assets, we can also respond to issues around accessibility for people. So if time shifting and because you can't watch, you know, how many times have people found themselves trying to rush to get to a theatre show starting at 7.30, trying to get something to eat beforehand, you know, online don't have to do it. People can choose when they want to view it. So I think there's a, you know, they're all opportunities, but it's really thinking about, the moment you're trying to make for an audience, who are they and what suits them and serves them best? 
Yeah, like a burst of activity, I also find, is a way to kind of beat the algorithms that we all face <laughs> on social media. You know, you can kind of just drop like a tweet and hope that it goes somewhere and it kind of just disappears into this huge sea. So when you kind of create bursts of activity, you know, as someone who makes podcasts for a living... I'm all about like kind of bursts of activities rather than little drops now and again. And that's a way that actually the the biggest way that we can all spread our work creatively and possibly if you're a creative, it's the really the thing that matters is what people think and whether people will tell a friend or share with someone. I really love that piece of work. Have you seen this? Have you heard this? And that actually doesn't cost anything but has the biggest impact, I suppose, in the ripple effect that we kind of hear. See, marketing is an interesting one, isn't it? Quite often, as someone who's been a part of the process in the amber lit, the getting things green lit uh, for the, some of the commissioning rounds, uh, often people kind of don't factor in as much money or as much time as they think for the marketing. Can you just kind of give us an idea of how much time? Do you think you spent more time dealing with the marketing, the partnerships, the distribution than the actual making of it? Um, I think we've been very lucky in that we have a a company producer um, as well as the film's producer who was able to take that on. I think what it meant is that we were both busy at different times. So in the run-up, I was working very closely with uh, Rodri Hugh, who was the film director on this. And Ellie was working with Anne Beresford, who was the film producer. But once the film was out there, Ellie suddenly became very busy and my job was done. Had we not had a full-time producer, then one of us would have been very busy for a very long time. Mm. Because as you've said, the marketing was a huge part of it in that, you know, the broadcast is brilliant, but really what's going to have a lasting life is is the film online across these various different platforms and, yeah, trying to reach people with it. Mm, I mean, it's really interesting. There seems to be a theme that I think we're going to hear across this series about factoring in that time for that and also factoring in that from the beginning as well, having those conversations. So the fact that I guess Ellie and Anne knew what was kind of coming and what their role would be later on, rather than kind of making this thing and almost having a bit of a surprise like, oh, now we've got to do this. Uh, and and as you say, kind of factoring that, but creating the right kind of team, um, delegating, sharing out this facts, like the planning of it just sounds like, yeah, it's, it's a big part of it, I suppose, rather than let's make something lovely that people are going to watch and say, wasn't that wonderful? Um, Fiona, like, how do you, what kind of advice do you have for, you know, perhaps there may be like theatre directors, writers, that are in Billy's shoes as of two, three years ago that really want to jump into this world, but feel a little bit overwhelmed and they're not really quite sure where to start? Um, I, well, I think I think it's about being realistic. Uh, you know, as, as Billy said, these things, you know, the minute you start engaging with the idea of a, of a, of a full-length digital project, um, you are now looking at the same amount of time and resource probably being devoted to it, you know, as, as you put into creating the original work. So, so I think understanding that it's going to suck up a lot of time, a lot of energy. And so being really clear, and that's part of our amber light process is to go, is this 
what you as an organisation and a group of creative artists should be spending your time on right now. You know, think about when that right moment is now. With with it's true, it's true, it's true. It's kind of slightly strange because obviously it was the right moment in terms of profile of gaining a broadcast platform, it then became even more appropriate because of the pandemic, which we couldn't have anticipated at the outset. But it, but it is about understanding that, that it's going to divert your attention away from other work that you might be trying to make. So, so I think knowing that it is the right moment and knowing that you have got the resource to, to devote towards it and understanding that's going to be long, long term. You know, if this is going to be useful to you as an artist, or as a, as a team of artists or an organisation, you're going to have to maintain this conversation. If you've done that thing of jumping up and down outside everyone's online window to get them to pay attention to you and watch this one thing, then the reason for doing that is because you want to take them forward to the next piece. So you're going to have to be considering sustainability around can you afford to continue to be having that dialogue, being you know, refreshing assets or blogs or stuff so that that audience having now latched onto you and become aware of the work I have a sense of you moving forward because actually worse than not bothering to draw their attention in the first place is drawing their attention and then the minute they look at you turning your shoulder and going sorry off doing another piece of work now we're not going to and then your you know your kind of social channels look out of date your your youtube channel looks out of date that is that's actually that's the worst so so i would say if anyone's starting out in this really think about whether this is the right moment whether this is the right project um then obviously it's a question of thinking about uh, how you want to adapt it. And then, you know, obviously end of the day, it's funding. It's about considering where you might be able to form partnerships, make funding applications and look for opportunities to, to bring in-kind support from other organisations. Um, there is funding strands like the Spaces, low-cost commissioning strand. Um, there are other opportunities with uh, new creatives for young individual artists, which is an Arts Council BBC funded program, um, Random Acts on Channel 4, you know, there are other, other places and obviously project grants now, Arts Council England project grants do now uh, encompass digital projects. But, but, you know, even that bit, and Billy will know this, you know, even that bit of writing those applications, you know, it's a, it's a big time commitment. So make sure, make sure this is the time to do it and this is the project to do it with. <laughs> Billy, are you able to tell us what are you doing next? What, what now? We are actually working on a couple of digital projects at the moment. Um, so we've been running weekly um, theatre workshops with a youth group in Cambridge, connected to Cambridge Junction uh, this term and next term. So from January, we'll be making what was going to be a live show with them and will now probably be a film. Um, so we're yet to kind of work out what that will be, but it will combine probably some Zoom remote film stuff with us, hopefully meeting up with them as well. So we're excited about that. Um, and the other thing we're working on is a scripted podcast. Um, we've never made an audio drama before, um, but we're currently structuring and writing the pilot for what will be a verbatim drama based around um, the undercover policing inquiry, which has just begun in the UK, around undercover cops uh, who infiltrated activist groups, some of whom then had relationships and children with those activists. Um, so we're kind of getting in there early uh, before anyone else decides to uh, make a verbatim project around that. Um, and yeah, hoping that we can get that onto a platform somewhere. Wow. I mean, 
I'm excited. That I mean, also I heard the word podcast, which I'm like, go podcast, go podcast. But wow, so it sounds like you are definitely going to continue to embrace this crazy digital world that you've now fallen headfirst into. I think so. Yeah, I think whatever happens with uh, this lockdown or pandemic, things are going to be moving into a more digital space. And something that's quite exciting about having made this film is that it's something we can physically tour when the time comes, as well as virtually tour through just hosting it. Um, We had planned before the lockdown uh, to take the film to Egypt and combine that with a workshop and a panel. We're kind of hoping that that lighter version of touring where you don't have to recontract the whole team and transport a set abroad can continue as things start to reopen and that we can use use the film as something to bring into physical spaces as well as virtual. I mean, it's, it's amazing to hear positive stories in 2020 because there have been a lot of people either in the arts world or I suppose in real life that have found 2020 unbelievably difficult. But it's great to hear that people like you are embracing this kind of technology and being really bold, really ambitious. Like I find it really inspiring and I'm sure that you will have made listeners either in the arts world or generically really inspired. Thanks for your time, Billy. Thanks very much. Yeah, brilliant to speak to you, though. Thanks, Billy. And if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, we've got some more episodes where we are talking to a bunch of cool people, art curators, artistic directors, uh, disability arts consultants, reaching accessible audiences, musicians, some incredibly other inspiring stories. So do make sure that you subscribe or you follow so that you get access to all of those. And of course, some of the things that we've talked about here, links to watch any of the trailers or other work that Billy's doing. Also, these skills and these toolkits that we talk about on The Space, you can visit the website, thespace.org. In the meantime, keep dreaming, keep believing and keep sowing the seeds of the tiny ideas that one day we may see on a screen near you. 